It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. As the coronavirus pandemic spread through the world in 2020 and 2021, the shift to work from home ushered in a home renovation boom. Basement dens became offices, bathrooms got an overhaul, bedrooms were split in two. For their COVID home reboots, many Americans turned to a kind of cheap flooring that is commonly sold at DIY stores. And as a Home Depot commercial explained, setting up vinyl flooring in your own home is very easy. Vinyl flooring is a great option for just about every interior living space in your home. The flooring we're installing today is LifeProof Rigid Core Vinyl Plank Flooring. LifeProof is the latest innovation in vinyl flooring. It's rigid. Vinyl flooring is seeing a surge of growth, boosted in part by pandemic era renovations. The industry calls it luxury vinyl tile. But in reality, it is layer upon layer of thin plastic, a heavily polluting concoction made with fossil fuels. And very often, that plastic is produced using forced labor. This is Intercepted. Vistendal, a senior reporter with The Intercept. I write about national security and technology. And for the past few months, I've been investigating the connection between vinyl flooring in U.S. stores, these plastics' devastating effect on the environment, and the way these plastics are produced using forced labor practices in China. It all starts in the Xinjiang region of northwestern China. For years, the Chinese state has persecuted the predominantly Muslim Uyghur ethnic group there. Not one, not some, but every single provision in the United Nations Genocide Convention violated by the Chinese government's treatment of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. These people are systematically oppressed by their own government. We've been waking up to horrific stories every day heartbreaking images separating mothers from their children. They live in a police state where they're monitored by one of the most advanced and intrusive surveillance systems in the world. Documents seen by the BBC that are said to have been hacked from Chinese police computers show that Uyghur prisoners in the western region of Xinjiang are shot on sight if they're caught trying to escape. Uyghurs have been systematically targeted by the Chinese state made to labor in factories with harsh chemicals 
that not just pollute the environment, but place the workers' own health at risk. The Xinjiang region is where Zhongtai Chemical sits. That's a Chinese government-owned petrochemical firm that is one of the world's largest manufacturers of polyvinyl chloride, or PVC. PVC is basically plastic. It's a critical ingredient in the kind of vinyl flooring that is sold at Home Depot and other places that you can buy home building products. A recent report from the nonprofit Center for Environmental Health found that in 2020 alone, the vinyl flooring that was shipped from China to the U.S. would cover over 1 million miles if laid out end to end. That's long enough to stretch from Earth to the moon four times over. And a lot of the PVC for those floors comes from Zhongtai. The state-owned conglomerate's four factories churn out more than 2 million tons of PVC resin per year. And still more flooring made with Zhongtai PVC arrives in the United States via countries like Vietnam. But here's the problem. Zhongtai's factories used forced Uyghur labor. By its own account, Zhongtai has brought in thousands of Uyghur workers to toil in its facilities. And many of these workers were brought in during the pandemic when other factories in China were shut down. The workers toil in an environment saturated with coal, mercury, and PVC dust. They're exposed to respiratory hazards, neurological effects, and carcinogens. This sort of forced labor is actually part of an overt government program. The Chinese government euphemistically calls this program the labor transfer scheme and claims it is aimed at lifting people out of poverty. But that claim is broadly disputed by human rights experts, scholars, and Uyghur survivors themselves. None of this dark backstory is on display in the flooring section of a DIY store, of course. Instead, flooring products at a high risk of using Xinjiang PVC have whimsical names that make it sound as if they originated in a serene forest. Sundance Canyon Hickory, Malayan Valley Oak, both of those styles are offerings in Home Depot's life-proof in-house flooring line. So I should note that Home Depot sent us a letter from one of their companies that supplies it with flooring. The letter says that the supplier's supplier had informed it that no PVC from Xinjiang was used to produce flooring for the Home Depot. The company also sent a statement that reads, quote, the Home Depot prohibits the use of forced or prison labor in its supply chain. This is an issue we take very seriously. The toll taken by the flooring industry is detailed in a report recently released by researchers at Sheffield Hallam University's Helena Kennedy Center for International Justice in England and at the Maine-based Toxic Chemical Investigative Outfit Material Research. The report paints a devastating picture of oppression and pollution in the Uyghur region. The report names Home Depot, among a number of other companies. Home Depot had this to say about it. Quote, We will work to review the information in the report and to take any additional steps necessary to ensure that the product we sell is free from forced labor and fully compliant with all applicable regulations. I'm joined today by two of the report's authors. Laura Murphy is a professor studying forced labor at Sheffield Hallam, and Nairola Elima is a researcher at Sheffield Hallam who is also herself Uyghur and grew up in the region. 
And one side note for our listeners. We at The Intercept have covered the Chinese government's repression of Uyghurs and other indigenous groups in a number of articles. We have published stories about surveillance technologies, about a leaked police database, and about the role played by American companies in the region. We've pushed back against corporate executives who downplayed oppression of Uyghurs, and we've noted how China hitched its own campaign against Muslims onto the war on terror, and how there were Uyghurs who even ended up detained at Guantanamo Bay. And we've discussed the topic on this podcast. But every time one of these articles or episodes comes out, we hear from people who ask why we're covering this issue. They allege that the plight of Uyghurs is just a right-wing talking point. They say that it has become a tool of the American foreign policy elite amid rising tensions with China. So I began my conversation by asking Laura how she would respond to that critique. You know, I think that there are many different reasons that politicians and, and, and regular people come to this issue, not all of which are reasons I share with them. There are people who are anti-China. There are people who are xenophobic. And those are not the reasons that we come to this. But I do think that this is not just a, a concern for the right. This is a concern for everyone, in particular for progressive people and other people on the left. We have to realize that this is you know, the most significant human rights violation that we've seen in our time, that um, we're talking about upwards of a million people who are in internment camps, a massive surveillance state that is spreading across China and across the world, questions about privacy and rights that are up for debate because of what China has been able to do to the Uyghur people that has expanded the, the rights of governments to um, control their everyday uh, behaviors of people, um, and especially minority people. And so concerns about minority rights, indigenous rights, uh, right to land, right to work. These things that we care about are, are at stake right now because China is getting away with doing it in the Uyghur region. We care about it for the Uyghurs and we care about it for the way it appears that China is looking to spread this across China and across the world. And I think that it's right for us to think about genocide and other forms of exploitation and abuse and human rights violations that happen in the United States or in Canada or Australia to indigenous people and the long legacy of slavery and, um, and its reach across you know, generations in the United States, for instance, to, to think about how important it is that we don't allow these things to happen in the world in other places or, or to encroach on other governments. And so I think that it's, it's completely fair to think, well, let's look internally and let's look at what we're doing in the United States to immigrants or to, to immigrant children, for instance. Let's look at how we're policing black lives. Those things are critical discussions. And I think that we are allies in these fights across the world to ensure the rights of indigenous people and people of color and workers, and that these things need to be uh, allied struggles rather than ones that we pit against each other. Thanks. That, that was very well put. And, and, and also, there are often U.S. companies involved, right? I mean, the, 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 you, your team at Sheffield Hallam University has probably done more than any other group of researchers in the world to draw attention to this issue of forced labor in the Uyghur region. You've published reports on solar panels, on cotton, on, on the role of the World Bank's International Finance Corporation. 
and and often um, U.S. companies or U.S. investors are are named it or are complicit in in what's happening in Xinjiang. Absolutely, some of the biggest name uh, investment firms and the biggest multinational corporations are sourcing from the Uyghur region, either directly or indirectly, and with impunity until now. There has been nothing stopping most of these companies from using Uyghur forced labor to make prices cheap, and. There's just such an enormous drive to to make prices cheaper and to buy things at the lowest possible price that that we actually we feed into a system that allows that in fact encourages a government like China's to uh, exploit the Uyghur people and to move industry out to the Uyghur region where they can use free labor practically uh, and also cheap coal to produce goods that we are buying in the United States and companies know that this is going on and they have for years looked away. Right, right. Uh, well, if I were an executive at a company that sources from China and an email from one of you or from someone on your team showed up in my inbox, I would I would be very worried. <laughs> <laughs> So you both have a personal connection to this issue. Um, can you can you talk a bit about how each of you got into this line of work? Narilla, why don't you start? My cousin is my cousin was in a concentration camp and then now she's in a prison. Before they put her in a prison, I started I, I think it was around two thousand nineteen. Or 2000, yeah, 2019. I start to look at the, at that time, I don't know what is the forced labor, but I do know transferring people to another place or to factory against their will is wrong. And I know grabbing lamb from Uyghur people or indigenous people is wrong. So I start to look at something online, then I found something. So I sent it to Ryan Thumb and I guess that's how Laura Murphy know about, uh, I, I have the knowledge of this and I start to look at this. So one day she approached to me and she wants to, to see what we can do together. So that's how we eventually ended up like publishing three reports. And, and Ryan Thumb is, um, Laura's partner and a scholar, um, of the region. That's correct. And I, I probably should have prefaced this by say, by, Asking, I mean, uh, you grew up in the Uyghur region. You are yourself Uyghur, um, and then left in what year? Two thousand eleven. And then since then, have had this horrible experience of of seeing your parents put under house arrest, your cousin sent to prison for you know basically spurious charges, right? And then the growing repression um, around them in the region. Yes, I I left the region in 2011, and then in 2017, after I obtained the Swedish citizen, I planned to go back to visit my parents with my, at that time, uh, boyfriend. And then my mom wrote something on the paper, said, do not come back. So, yeah, I never had a chance to go back to Xinjiang since 2011. And since 2018, they detained my cousin and then put my parents under house arrest in 2019. So basically since 2017, or let's say basically since 2018, 
I'm living in a hell. Yeah, I'm so sorry. And Laura, could you talk about about how you got into this issue? What your your background is, but sure. I um, I've lived in Xinjiang for a short times, about a year in the two, early two thousands, and have been back um, several times since then. And uh, when the the crisis in the Uyghur region first started to become apparent to us, at least in 2017, and we started to hear about people disappearing, we became very concerned. Uh, people we knew were disappearing and were not um, being able to communicate with their families. And we started to hear from more and more people in the Uyghur region that they were losing touch with their families or being told not to come home, just like the kind of story that Nirola was just saying. And so... For some time, I, I, you know, I was I was concerned about this issue, and I was working however I could, putting things up on Twitter, helping to raise awareness. But then, when it turned out that there was a massive system of forced labor, that's where I kicked in. My my research is on forced labor, and so I very quickly began to try to learn how to do the research methods that I have been employing for these that that my whole team has been employing for these projects because my work has always been about worker voice and about survivor narratives and thinking about how people who are forced to work explain those situations themselves. And in this situation, we don't have access to the workers. We have no capacity to get on the ground in Xinjiang and actually do worker voice interviews or talk to survivors of the camps or of the forced labor regime. And so we had to find other ways to understand what was going on. And so what we do and what Nairola is a genius at is just searching the internet for traces that companies and governments leave online themselves of the work they're, they're doing. They write up uh, explanations of, uh, you know, their celebration of how they transformed people from being um, uh, farmers to being workers, from not wanting to work in a factory to wanting to work in a factory, how they go door to door day after day to coerce people into leaving their homes and families and land behind to go to work against their will. And so we we use those methods because we can't talk directly to Uyghurs who are working on the ground. And it's, it's, it's terrible, but this is what we have. And so it's what we're using to better understand the situation. Um, Nairola, could you talk a bit about the process of, of documenting those abuses? I mean, um, the, the, the Chinese government euphemistically calls this program, the, the labor transfer scheme, um, when in fact it is a mass forced labor um, effort. But where do workers in this scheme come from? And how are they um, transported to factories? And then what happens once once they're there? Um, the Chinese government says, um, as you probably already see or heard, that Chinese government says that all employment is voluntary and how this power to elevation program is doing good, how they lifted weaker people out of the poverty, and the work transfer help free like rural families from poverty by giving them like a, a steady wages, skills, and how they train them in the Chinese language. But during my research, I have been seeing like repeatedly multiple times that the Chinese people Chinese media acknowledge that workers repeatedly claim they don't want to go. They have a sick parents need to take care. They have a newborn baby. 
they just married or they have a family or some of them already had a job or has a, a farm need to plant. And then when I document all of these government uh, directives, uh, directives, companies, uh, IPO documents or annual report or all of those states media, I, I saw that Uyghur workers, usually they were standing at attention under the flag of China. And those new recruit employees, they were undergo some training in management and sometimes Chinese culture or adequated or then train them how to loving the party, loving the countries and somehow like weirdly some loving the individual like Xi Jinping. And before this Uyghur worker assigned to the work, they were giving some lectures some on eradicating religious extremism and train them becoming law-abating workers uh, who will embrace their Chinese national hood. When I read this kind of news or when I read the documents, you clearly see there's a coercive behind this the descri description and some of the video you will see the people you will see some of the really weird video like Uyghur worker washing Han Chinese uh, let's say boss or their su superiors are washing their feet this is absolutely not a ordinary worker orientation you do not ask someone else to wash your feet Right. And you do not force someone to has to love country, love the party, then get a job. You do not force someone to leave their home, leave their wife, leave their husband, whatever the kids and to come into you here to work. So every time when I see this kind of weird <laughs> propaganda articles or government news or the any report, I will just archive them and save it. And then I know one day eventually I will use it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that that many of these state media reports are very, they read as very weird. And, um, you know, I was also struck in the reports that you collected by, by the admission that workers often did not want to be at the factories, that they had left behind their ailing parents, their newborn baby, as you mentioned. Um, and you know, many listeners might find it odd that the state press would so carefully document what what to international observers is clearly a gross violation of human rights. Um, so you know, why why did they carefully document these abuses? What's going on with those state press reports? They believe what they're doing is good. They don't even realize they're exploded Uyghur people, and they believe. They believe this kind of program is indeed will change Uyghur people mindset. They believe Uyghur people has radical mindset and they're backward. And they believe this kind of poverty elevation program, labor transfer program indeed will change their mindset and change their, uh, um, thinking, change their thought, turn them to become a better citizen. That's why they are carefully documenting this kind of things, not only for not only for celebrating, but also show company willing to show their loyalty to the Chinese government. You have this kind of the program. Look how we do how we did it, and everyone is competing to each others. And and in fact, to participate in this kind of labor transfer program, they will actually get the the reward from the Chinese government. So. 
this is why they they will document it ever since. But I also see there's a big transfer since uh, since last year, after the Chinese government, Chinese companies realized Western were taking very serious on this kind of the uh, human rights abuse issue. They start to wipe up this kind of the uh, document in their annual report or IPO report. And sometimes they will delete everything they have they published before. I just, I want to, to put a fine point on what Nerola is saying here. And what we're looking at is a massive, rampant racism that pervades uh, discourse about Uyghurs across China. And companies have for a long time been resistant to operating in the Uyghur region because they hold these extraordinarily racist, uh, corporate executives hold extraordinarily racist ideas about Uyghur people, about what they're capable of, about their work ethics, about their values, about their religion and their practices and their culture, and about women and what women believe and what women should have to believe. And 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 how many children they should have. I mean, you know, it's just extremely racist. And it, it has all of the contours of colonialism and colonial racism that we're, we recognize um, from the rest of the world. It's absolutely identifiable from, from everyday experience in the region. And it's, it's documented in academic studies, Chinese academic studies sponsored by the state, um, uh, that that show that companies have resisted working in that region or working with Uyghurs or hiring Uyghurs. There are job descriptions that explicitly exclude ethnic minorities from anything that's forward-facing, like customer-facing, anything that's ac- administrative. And so companies moving out to the Uyghur region hold these beliefs to be true and have taken up the responsibility of changing Uyghurs, transforming them um, for every aspect of their lives, in their homes, in the way they pray, in the way they eat, the way they talk, who they talk to, what language they speak, how their children are raised, how they how they plant their own fields, what what crops they plant, um, what books they read, everything, every tiny little aspect of life is being controlled by these companies at the behest of the, the central government. And companies are sending their workers, their Han workers, into Uyghur homes to stay, sometimes for weeks at a time even, to monitor, to surveil Uyghur people, and to ensure that they behave in a way that is deemed appropriate by the majority population that has colonized there. So these companies are part of a massive colonial enterprise that have have infiltrated the entire life and culture of, of Uyghur life. Uyghurs are the dominant population um, of that region. But companies in collaboration with the government are, are doing the government's work for the government, essentially, monitoring and controlling Uyghur people and Uyghur lives and Uyghur culture and Uyghur identities. And, and it's, it's all part of this bigger colonial project. And so when they celebrate, when they show that they've taken Muhammad away from his home, that they have put him into intensive labor, that they have made him a docile citizen who used to, uh, in one story we saw, like, say every single day that he wants to leave. But now, now he's, he's working and, and is quiet and is no longer complaining. That's a story that shows the government that they are playing their role in, um, in suppressing 
the Uyghur people. And that is what is happening in those, those documents. And it's, and Norella's right. It is, it, you can see it in all these different little aspects of what they're, they're doing and what they're claiming to be doing. But the overall mission is a colonial mission and it's, and it's a repressive mission and it's being enacted hand in hand between the government and companies. And, and as you said before, U.S. companies, multinational corporations are complicit in this and they're turning away. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Let's talk about the the report that you just came out with uh, on forced labor in the vinyl flooring industry. That's a product that many Americans have in their homes or in their offices, but that most people haven't thought twice about, you know, and yet it's literally underneath our feet. Um, can you talk about how you came to this particular topic? And, you know, why did you look at this specific company in, in your report, um, Zhong Tai Chemical Group? Part of how we determine what we're going to study is based on what the Chinese government has invested in, in the Uyghur region. They've invested in new energy development. They've invested in apparel manufacturing and cotton producing and processing in that region. So that, that, in, the ter- in, uh, in terms of cotton, that's been for decades now. Um, but they, you know, so we look at the things that the Chinese government has put the most emphasis on. But while we're doing research, we are often just collecting other companies that we, we're, we're not sure about or that didn't quite make it into the report. And we have profiles of tons of companies in our hard drives that, that are, we're still trying to figure out what to do with. And so Nirola, uh, tell us about looking into Jung Tai before we even started thinking about PVC. And then I'll pick up how we ended up doing PVC. I have been, uh, I know Zhongtai since 2019. But at that time, I was not specifically looking at Zhongtai. I was looking almost like every company in, in Xinjiang. And at uh, that time, I was looking at almost every industry because I realized no matter which industry you look at it in the Western world, somehow some Chinese company or Xinjiang company are involved. And, and then, so Zhongtai was all, always on my radar because what every time when I search on the state-sponsored labor 
transfer program or poverty elevation program, I see Zhongtai's name. And Zhongtai is there. He's also, it, this company always there. So I always archive, save it, archive, save it. And then one day, uh, after, uh, after we finished, uh, this World Bank, uh, IFC report, and somehow, uh, Laura said, uh, there's a border. So she asked me to look at the PVC industry. Then I searched Zhongtai. Yeah. So I said, hey, we already have a tons of document of Zhongtai. So that's how we started. Yeah. We, we, we had asked um, a group called Material Research to help us just review our environmental analysis in, the, in uh, the International Finance Corporation report that we did, where we showed that International Finance Corporation, the development arm of the World Bank, had been investing in companies in the Uyghur region and, in fact, w owned equity in one of them. And we were trying to understand their role there, not only in participating in forced labor, but also in environmental damage, because we're starting to see more and more that this is not just, these companies are not just treating Uyghurs as a docile labor force, they're treating Uyghurs essentially as disposable in all aspects of their lives. So it doesn't matter if they completely pollute the region or, or do horrible things to their farmland or dispossess them of their land. The, the Uyghur people are essentially being treated as disposable. And so we wanted material research to review the environmental pieces because this was not our area of expertise. Well, when we did that, he said, hey, okay, look, how about we trade? You help me understand Zhongtai and and I'll help you understand this envir environmental stuff because he'd been looking at PVC production and the environmental damage there, but he didn't have access to information about forced labor. This is a, this is your co-author, Jim Vallette. So this is how Jim Vallette and Material Research teamed up with us, with me and Nerola, to try to understand what's going on in the, the, the flooring industry. And what we learned was that, in fact, you know, Zhongtai and the six other factory, well, the, the seven total factories, four of which are owned by uh, Zhongtai, that are creating PVC in the Uyghur region, produce 10% of the world's PVC. And so this was another industry that, in fact, the Chinese government had really invested in moving out to the Uyghur region, again, to, uh, to rely on all the labor there and also to rely on the coal that's, uh, that's so abundant in the Uyghur region. So we here we were like, okay, let's do this. Let's make this report happen and let's collaborate. So yeah, let's talk about the the pollution. I mean, one of the to me one of the most tragic findings of the report, and, and there are many of them, um, but one of them is the intersection of racism with with pollution and environmental damage. Um, and you know, <laughs> I looked a lot at the. So I focused a bit on the consumer-facing end of the vinyl flooring industry, and the companies often promote it as environmentally friendly, which it's not. Um, you know, they even tout it as liberating for women. But in fact, it has this incredibly dirty production process. And can you talk about that process and how it intersects with the oppression of Uyghurs? So there are two ways. Uh, two, two primary ways that the production of PVC is harmful for the environment and harmful for workers. One is that it's made using coal, with this, which is extremely dirty. It has an enormous carbon footprint. And what Material Research and Jim Vallette, our co-author, was able to do was to calculate the extraordinary carbon emissions that, that are produced in the production of PVC in the Uyghur region. Because 
it's one of the only places in the world where this one process is allowed to continue happening, a process that mixes coal and mercury to create PVC. And so it has an enormously high carbon footprint and it has this enormous, it, it, it consumes more mercury than any other industry. And, and, and in fact, it consumes some huge percentage of the, the mercury that's produced in the world each year. And why this is important is that one, that mercury leaches into the to the places where it's being produced. A ton of it is emitted into the air. There are in other places in the world where this process used to be used, including in my home state of Louisiana, those places have been declared super fun sites and the factories have been closed. But the Chinese government allows this industry and many other extraordinarily polluting industries to move out to the Uyghur region, even as they're shutting it down in other parts of China. Because again, the Uyghur region is being treated as a dumping ground for whatever horrible things that the Chinese government has to do or whatever um, projects for social control that they want to test out in that, that they do these things in the Uyghur region. And so we saw stories where people were saying that all of their crops were dying as a result of one of these PVC plants moving in, that they were dying. This is really dangerous stuff. And where do they put it? They put it in the middle of farmland and, you know, often it'll look, it is the desert, but there are farms within a kilometer or two of these plants. Yeah. And my understanding is, you know, well, this process is highly polluting wherever it happens. It's even more polluting the way it's happening in Xinjiang because of the use of mercury and so forth. That's exactly right. And it, you're right to say that this is a form of environmental racism. And people, I mean, this is, again, this goes back to why people on the left should care about this, because it really is um, a situation of environmental racism in a context of colonialism, where um, people are being treated as if their lives are not worth what um, everyone else's lives are worth. And so I, I, I think it's one of the most devastating things I've ever researched, honestly. Zhongtai makes PVC at its factories, and then that PVC eventually ends up in the flooring that you know appears on the shelves of, for example, Home Depot and you know, other big box stores in America. Can you talk about how it gets there and you know where how, where it goes along the way? Sure. Uh, all of the PVC that Zhongtai manufactures, they manufacture in the Uyghur region, and then they ship it to two different uh, places on the coast, at least. They probably ship it to many different places, but from our uh, vantage point, we can only see what's publicly documented. So we're able to see them shipping it to their own subsidiaries in, in Hong Kong. They have an import-export business registered there. This is how a lot of companies are moving their goods from the Uyghur region out to the coast. And then they also sell it to a, another company unrelated to them called Zhejiang Tianjin. Zhongtai is the second biggest supplier of PVC to Zhejiang Tianjin. And then from the coast, from those two companies, the PVC gets sent to a company, a Chinese-owned company, a company owned by Zhejiang Tianjin itself called Jufeng New Materials in Vietnam. So this company that is ostensibly a Vietnamese company where they manufacture the PVC into, um, into flooring tiles, that, that company is actually Chinese-owned. And it's and it is actually um, receiving tons of its um, PVC from Xinjiang, though not directly. And this is what we're seeing more and more. It used to be that you could see a lot of shipments coming out of the Uyghur region, 
you could see it in shipping records. They would ship directly to the United States, in fact, from Xinjiang. In the last four years, that has declined precipitously as people have become more aware of, of the, the crisis in the Uyghur region. And so what's happening now is that Xinjiang companies like Zhongtai ship to other companies or their own subsidiaries on the coast and then to a second country uh, like Vietnam or Cambodia or India where they manufacture the finished product so that the packaging says made in Vietnam or made in Cambodia. And so we, in this way, the, uh, the, the China inputs and the Xinjiang inputs are obscured for the final consumer. They end up on the shelves of companies like Home Depot and many, many, many other, of the other um, major flooring uh, companies in, in the United States through this intermediary this Chinese company that is an intermediary in Vietnam. This is happening more and more. We see companies setting up intermediary uh, subsidiaries across Southeast Asia to because this allows them to move things out of China uh, and out to the rest of the world more easily. Yeah, and as you said, it's not just Home Depot. I think your report named dozens of companies that receive flooring from this factory um, in Vietnam and from other intermediaries. And, you know, you, even if you go to like a, a small contractor thinking, I'll just get my flooring from an independent source, there's a, there's a high likelihood that their flooring is is also made with uh, PVC from, from the Uyghur region. So this, all of that shows how just very complex um, this issue is. Uh, your team... Uh, Laura Nairola was able to trace the flow of PVC from Xinjiang to the United States by by carefully analyzing shipping records, um, by looking at these um, company reports and um, by state press reports, as you explained. But companies, when when they're confronted with this evidence, often say. Look, this is it's it's really hard for us to carefully vet our supply chains. Um, you know, vinyl flooring passes through m- multiple companies, and it's become harder for us to audit our factories in China for a number of reasons. And now, Laura, you've you've basically told me that you think this is a weak defense, and that companies can can do a lot more. So I do think that's a really weak defense, and I'll, it's for two reasons. One, what we're able to do is identify risk of, of Xinjiang inputs going into a final piece of flooring. It's possible that because not all of Jufeng's PVC comes from Zhongtai, as far as we can tell, um, that maybe you know what this piece of flooring over here or this particular shipment over there was made with uh, PVC that was not made in the Uyghur region. However, there's a lot more. PVC being made in the Uyghur region that we can't trace because it's being obscured. And so so we think we're underestimating how much PVC is going into this flooring to start with. But but companies should be able to identify that risk the same way we do. They can look at the same documents. In fact, they have more evidence that they can collect. They have more power to get information than we do. Um, And so they should be asking their suppliers precisely where every ounce of PVC is coming from to ensure that the raw materials that go into their products is not being mined or manufactured in the Uyghur region. If you're selling things in the United States, that is now the law. 
Um, but the, the thing is that companies will say, well, we're getting stonewalled by our suppliers. They won't tell us where they buy it from. And I say, well, first of all, you can often find it in their own corporate annual reports. That's how we do it. You can look at your customs records to see if they're, if they're buying from that company. That's how we do it. We've had tons of companies write to us and say, oh, no, 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 no. My supplier has told us that they stopped sourcing from X company two years ago. And I say, well, here's a spreadsheet of U.S. custom records that proves the opposite. And it takes me two minutes to find that information, right? And they're just going on the word uh, of their companies or their suppliers. Attestations, written attestations saying, we abhor forced labor, which of course everyone says they abhor forced labor. The attestations that say we have a policy. Well, of course you have a policy. That doesn't mean you uh, uh, you actually even know what forced labor is. I think a lot of these companies in China don't believe that what's happening in the Uyghur region is 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 forced labor, and have a completely different definition of that because again of this racism and colonialism that I've been talking about. And and then they they get told by the companies, oh, we can't find out or we won't find out for you where our goods are coming from, and they. Still continue to source from those companies. And it seems to me that if, if, if a company goes to a supplier and the supplier says, I can't or won't tell you where, your, where the inputs come from, then you have to find a new supplier. And especially now that the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act went into effect last week, um, and the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act bans any U.S. company from importing goods that were made in whole or in part in the Uyghur region. That's raw materials, rocks, cotton, anything that could be mined or grown, anything that could be manufactured in that region is banned from import. It's critical that companies do that research. But they keep saying, oh, well, we're getting stonewalled. And their response is that the government should change the law, not that they should change their suppliers. They need to change their suppliers. And it is going to mean some slowing of supply chains. It is going to mean some pretty radical shifts. But it also means the increase in productivity and capacity of companies around the world to produce things outside of a place where there is the most egregious human rights violations going on and where most of the manufacturing is being based on coal. So this is good in general anyway for the expanded capacity for manufacturing to, 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 to happen across the world. This is a way of getting out of being held captive when China decides they're going to do something horrible to people or they're going to um, capitalize on uh, exploitation. Right. I mean, so you said, you mentioned that that companies will often say, well, we've we've gone to our suppliers and they say everything's fine. I mean, in the, in the process of, of writing about your report and doing my own research, I went to Home Depot to, to ask them about a um, flooring line called Life Proof, um, in which some of the, the styles, some of the Life Proof styles um, are, have a high likelihood um, of being made with PVC from Zhongtai, as your report showed. And they sent me a letter from their immediate supplier claiming that the um, the parent company of the Vietnamese factory you talked about had assured them that it was it was not using PVC from Xinjiang to produce flooring for the for Home Depot. And so, you know, uh, case closed. <laughs> but um, that that is clearly not sufficient. You're saying well, and it's not only not sufficient; it's just untrue. I mean, we saw, you know, Home Depot say, "Well, we uh, 
we got attestations that they were not sourcing from Zhongtai since June 24th. And it took me two minutes to look at customs records to see that that was not true. Um, as a supply chain analyst, I acknowledge it is a bit tricky to trace this stuff because the biggest problem is com the complexity and um, opacity of the supply chains that run through the China. But it's tricky for us. It is not tricky for the companies. You purchase stuff, you sourcing stuff, you should know where your stuff coming from. And you have much more resource than us because you are the one who talk to the supplier, right? Not us. And I, I, I also understand that the products can, you know, pass through much, much layers, sometimes much layers of the companies, uh, sometimes maybe in inland China or outside China. But again, company, you have the, the um, responsibility and you have the resource. You can ask your supplier, you can ask where they're sourcing from. Uh, the, mo the things amaze me is every single time after we publish the report, there always have some companies, big, big, big companies, big gone, came to us to ask, could you please tell us what we can do? I, I, to be honest, I feel very amazed. Like, I don't have your resource. <laughs> we found it. You have the resource. What are you doing? And it was like, we found it using our internet connection and, <laughs> and some and some and some careful yes, research skills. They yeah. willing pay tons of money to consulting company to tell them, oh, your supply chain is fine, but. They, they sh what they're actually should doing is paying the money to those who actually really focus on the human rights issues, you know, or those who actually do their job to find their problem in their supply chains. But no, companies just, mm -mm, as long as I hide good, as long as the law doesn't come, come to me, as long as there's no report expose us, we're fine, you know, and that, but when we do greenwash or when we do PR, we're always said, oh, forced labor is a horrible issue, but, ah, oh, it's just driving me crazy when I see how hypocrites they are. Um, and what about the role of consumers in all of this? So, you know what, I mean, what about people who are listening to this podcast, for example? I mean, it's, um, it's not sustainable to go rip up your vinyl floors, uh, obviously. And, you know, people who are planning to install new floors can look for better alternatives. But what about the rest of us? I mean, what can consumers do about the, about forced labor in the Uyghur region? Yeah, companies need to know that consumers care. Like, I think they believe that we don't care and that all we care about is that we get goods that are as cheap as humanly possible. And, and this is, it, it, I guess we should put it as, as cheap as inhumanely possible, right? <laughs> and so... Um, so I do think that we should be looking for more sustainable um, uh, companies. We shouldn't be just believing when they say, oh, well, we have this certification or, or that certification. These things have all been uh, pretty much all been debunked as as legitimate ways of determining if there's forced labor in your supply chain. And most of them don't even say that they're um, they're. They're identifying forced labor. Most certifications aren't doing that work, but we we've come to believe that they are, that they're protecting us, and they're they're not protecting us from everything. Um, and so, but I think you know, for me, I, I think for a lot of people who are really invested in this this issue and really invested in rights, I think and 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 invested in the planet's future, I think that buying more things used actually is is a big thing that we can do. Like really dedicate ourselves to 
um, being engaged in recycling uh, and, and reusing. But, you know, when it comes down to it, consumers can't trace everything that they buy, right? They can't do what we do. It takes us a really long time to figure out what's going on. And it takes some skills. Like they, And they shouldn't be expected to. Governments should be protecting consumers from being exposed to complicity and forced labor. Our governments need to be taking action to identify those goods and keeping them from coming into the country. The United States and Canada are the only countries that actually have laws on the books to say that we can't import these kinds of goods. These known goods known to be made with forced labor. The EU is looking at a bill for it. I think EU citizens need to step up and say, look, we want this bill. We expect that our government protects us from buying goods made with forced labor because we can we can buy all the used things we want. But, you know, we do have to buy some things. If I want paprika, for instance, it's likely coming from the Uyghur region. And and yet I can't get used paprika. You know, it, it's like it, it's hard to buy even a pair of headphones. Can't get used tomatoes. Right. You can't get used tomato paste. And even headphones, like it's hard to buy a pair of cheap used headphones. Um, and it's impossible to find a pair that you or it's very difficult to find a pair that's not made in China and that you can really trace the provenance of. And again, consumers shouldn't be responsible for this. Companies should be responsible for this, for ensuring that they're not using forced labor. So we need government, and companies won't do it voluntarily. We need government to tell companies that they must trace their supply chains all the way to the raw materials. I think most people believe that companies know that information, and they simply don't, and it's convenient for them not to know it, and it's dangerous for us. And, and you mentioned the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, um, which a key provision of that just came into effect last week, and that essentially requires that customs officers assume that goods originating from Xinjiang are made with forced labor, um, which is which is a great step forward. But that doesn't cover all goods that are whose supply chains are tainted by forced labor by by any means, right? So there's there's a lot more to be done even policy wise in the United States. Is that right? I, I think that's right. I mean we do have a, 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 a thing called the Tariff Act. It was passed in 1930. It's basically unprecedented globally. That bans the import of forced labor-made goods from anywhere. The Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act puts a very fine point on it and says that we're absolutely going to be scrutinizing and looking for products that are made in the Uyghur region. We've decided that's a region, a whole region-wide ban on goods made there because the presumption is that all of the goods made there are made with forced labor. But, you know, this, the, 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 the forced labor made the tariff act and, and its ability to monitor goods made with forced labor. Um, you know, it's it's only been really put into effect for the last few years, and it's 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 quite difficult and it's unusual. Like I said, it doesn't exist in other parts of the world, and I think we need. I think what we're doing here with the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is going to. It, I think it's a really good step because it's going to require companies to trace their supply chains and due diligence, mandatory human rights due diligence laws that are coming into effect in Europe, we hope, um, soon will also make them trace their supply chains. And that is important, not just for the Uyghur region, but for forced labor, um, for addressing forced labor globally and for holding corporations responsible and accountable for, for their use of, of these exploitative uh, systems to make products cheap. Well, thank you both so much for joining us on Intercepted. I, this, this was great. Thanks for having us.
Yeah, it was a great conversation. Yeah, and thanks for doing the incredible work you you did to to do the research on this this piece as well. Well, likewise, this, it's, this is a great report. Um, you can find it on Sheffield Hallam University's site. It's called Built on Repression. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Deconstructed, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Mara Vistendahl. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.